The Pickwick Papers, Chapter 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. This recording by Patty Bruckman. Patty. Chapter 11. Involving another journey and an antiquarian discovery. Recording Mr. Pickwick's determination to be present at an election and containing a manuscript of the old clergyman's. A night of quiet and repose in the profound silence of Dingley Dell, and an hour's breathing of its fresh and fragrant air on the ensuing morning, completely recovered Mr. Pickwick from the effects of his late fatigue of body and anxiety of mind. That illustrious man had been separated from his friends and followers for two whole days, and it was with a degree of pleasure and delight which no common imagination can adequately conceive that he stepped forward to greet Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass as he encountered those gentlemen on his return from his early walk. The pleasure was mutual, for who could ever gaze on Mr. Pickwick's beaming face without experiencing the sensation? But still a cloud seemed to hang over his companion, which that great man could not but be sensible of, and was wholly at a loss to account for. There was a mysterious air about them both, as unusual as it was alarming. At a and how, said Mr. Pickwick, when he had grasped his followers by the hand and exchanged warm salutations of welcome, is Mr. Tupman. Mr. Winkle, to whom the question was more peculiarly addressed, made no reply. He turned away his head and appeared absorbed in melancholy reflection. Snodgrass, said Mr. Pickwick earnestly, how is our friend? He is not ill. No, replied Mr. Snodgrass, and a tear trembled on his sentimental eyelid like a raindrop on a window frame. No, he's not ill. Mr. Pickwick stopped and gazed at each of his friends in turn. Winkle, Snodgrass, said Mr. Pickwick, what does this mean? Where is our friend? What has happened? Speak. I conjure you, I entreat you, nay, I command you, speak. There was a solemnity, a dignity in Mr. Pickwick's manner not to be withstood. He is gone, said Mr. Snodgrass. Gone, exclaimed Mr. Pickwick, gone. Gone, repeated Mr. Snodgrass. Where, ejaculated Mr. Pickwick. We can only guess from that communication, replied Mr. Snodgrass taking a letter from his pocket and placing it in his friend's hand. Yesterday morning, when a letter was received from Mr. Wardle, stating that you would be home with his sister at night, the melancholy which had hung over our friend during the whole of the previous day was observed to increase. He shortly afterwards disappeared. He was missing during the whole day, and in the evening this letter was brought by the hostler from the Crown at Muggleton. It had been left in his charge in that morning, with a strict injunction that it should not be delivered until night. Mr. Pickwick opened the epistle. It was in his friend's handwriting, and these were its contents. My dear Pickwick, you, my dear friend, are placed far beyond the reach of many mortal frailties and weaknesses which ordinary people cannot overcome. You do not know what it is, at one blow, 
to be deserted by a lovely and fascinating creature, and to fall a victim to the artifices of a villain, who hid the grin and cunning beneath the mask of friendship, I hope you never may. Any letter addressed to me at the leathern bottle, Cobhab, Kent, will be forwarded, supposing I still exist. I hasten from the sight of the world which has become odious to me. Should I hasten from it altogether, pity forgive me. Life, my dear Pickwick, has become insupportable to me. The spirit which burns within us is a porter's knot, on which to rest the heavy load of worldly cares and troubles, and when that spirit fails us, the burden is too heavy to be borne. We sink beneath it. You may tell Rachel. Ah, oh, that name. Tracy Tupman. We must leave this place directly, said Mr. Pickwick, as he refolded the note. It would not have been decent for us to remain here under any circumstances after what has happened, and now we are bound to follow in search of our friend. So saying, he led the way to the house. His intention was rapidly communicated. The entreaties to remain were pressing, but Mr. Pickwick was inflexible. Business, he said, required his immediate attention. The old clergyman was present. "'You are not really going,' he said, taking Mr. Pickwick aside. Mr. Pickwick reiterated his former determination. "'Then here,' said the old gentleman, "'is a little manuscript which I had hoped to have the pleasure of reading to you myself. I found it on the death of a friend of mine, a medical man engaged in our county lunatic asylum, among a variety of papers which I had the option of destroying or preserving, as I thought proper. I can hardly believe that the manuscript is genuine, though it certainly is not in my friend's hand. However, whether it be the genius production of a maniac, or founded upon the ravings of some unhappy being, which I think more probable, read it and judge for yourself. Mr. Pickwick received the manuscript and parted from the benevolent old gentleman with many expressions of goodwill and esteem. It was a more difficult task to take leave of the inmates of Manor Farm, from whom they had received so much hospitality and kindness. Mr. Pickwick kissed the young ladies, we were going to say it as if they were his own daughters, only as he might possibly have infused a little more warmth into the salutation. A comparison would not be quite appropriate. Hugged the old lady with filial cordiality, and patted the rosy cheeks of the female servants in a most patriarchal manner, as he slipped into the hands of each some more substantial expression of his approval. The exchange of cordialities, which their fine old host and Mr. Trundle were even more hearty and prolonged, and it was not until Mr. Snodgrass had been several times called for, and at last emerged from a dark passage, followed so soon after by Emily, whose bright eyes looked unusually dim, that the three friends were enabled to tear themselves from their friendly entertainers. Many a backward look they gave at the farm as they walked slowly away, and many a kiss did Mr. Snodgrass waft in the air in acknowledgment of something very like a lady's handkerchief, which was waved from one of the upper windows until a turn of the lane hid the old house from their sight. 
At Muggleton they procured a conveyance to Rochester. By the time they reached the last-named place, the violence of their grief had sufficiently abated to admit their making a very excellent early dinner, and having procured the necessary information relative to the road, the three friends set forward again in the afternoon to walk to Cobham. A delightful walk it was, for it was a pleasant afternoon in June, and their way lay through a deep and shady wood, cooled by the light wind which gently rustled the thick foliage and enlivened by the songs of the birds that perched upon the boughs. The ivy and the moss crept in thick clusters over the old trees, and the soft green turf overspread the ground like a silken mat. They emerged upon an open park with an ancient hall displaying the quaint and picturesque architecture of Elizabeth's time. Long vistas of stately oaks and elm trees appeared on every side. Large herds of deer were cropping the fresh grass, and occasionally a startled hare scoured along the ground with the speed of shadows thrown by the light clouds which swept across a sunny landscape like a passing breath of summer. If this, said Mr. Pickwick, looking about him, if this were the place to which all who are troubled with their friend's complaint came, I fancy their old attachment to this world would very soon return. I think so, too, said Mr. Winkle. And really, added Mr. Pickwick, after half an hour's walking had brought them to the village, really, for a misanthrope's choice, this is one of the prettiest and most desirable places of residence I ever met with. In this opinion also, both Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass expressed their concurrence, and having been directed to the leathern bottle, a clean and commodious village alehouse, the three travellers entered and at once inquired for the gentleman of the name of Tupman. "'Show the gentleman into the parlour, Tom,' said the landlady. A stout country lad opened the door at the end of the passage, and the three friends entered a long, low-roofed room furnished with a large number of high-backed leather-cushioned chairs of fantastic shapes, and embellished with a great variety of old portraits and roughly coloured prints of some antiquity. At the upper end of the room was a table with a white cloth upon it, well covered with a roast fowl, bacon, ale, and etc. And at the table sat Mr. Tupman, looking as an unlike a man who had taken his leave of the world as possible. On the entrance of his friends, that gentleman laid down his knife and fork, and with a mournful air advanced to meet them. "'I did not expect to see you here,' he said, as he grasped Mr. Pickwick's hand. "'It's very kind.' "'Ah,' said Mr. Pickwick, sitting down and wiping his forehead, the perspiration of which the walk had engendered. "'Finish your dinner and walk out with me. I wish to speak to you alone.' Mr. Tupman did as he was desired, and Mr. Pickwick, having refreshed himself with a copious draught of ale, waited his friend's leisure. The dinner was quickly dispatched, and they walked out together. For half an hour their forms might have been seen pacing the churchyard to and fro, while Mr. Pickwick was engaged in combating his companion's resolution. Any repetition of his arguments would be useless, for what language could convey to them that energy and force which their great originator's manner communicated? Whether Mr. Tupman was already tired of retirement, or whether he was wholly unable to resist the eloquent appeal which was made to him, matters not. 
he did not resist it at last. It mattered little to him, he said, where he dragged out the miserable remainder of his days, and since his friend laid so much stress upon his humble companionship, he was willing to share his adventures. Mr. Pickwick smiled. They shook hands and walked back to rejoin their companions. It was at this moment that Mr. Pickwick made that immortal discovery which has been the pride and boast of his friends and the envy of every antiquarian in this or any other country. They had passed the door of their inn and walked a little way down the village before they recollected the precise spot in which it stood. As they turned back, Mr. Pickwick's eye fell upon a small broken stone, partially buried in the ground in front of a cottage door. He paused. "'This is very strange,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'What is strange?' inquired Mr. Tupman, staring eagerly at every object near him but the right one. "'God bless me, what's the matter?' This last was an ejaculation of irrepressible astonishment, occasioned by seeing Mr. Pickwick, in his enthusiasm for discovery, fall on his knees before the little stone and commence wiping the dust off it with his pocket-handkerchief. "'There is an inscription here,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Is it possible?' said Mr. Tupman. "'I can discern,' continued Mr. Pickwick, rubbing away with all his might and gazing intently through his spectacles, I can discern a cross, and a B, and then a T. This is important, continued Mr. Pickwick, starting up. This is some very old inscription, existing perhaps long before the ancient almshouses in this place. It must not be lost. He tapped at the cottage door. A laboring man opened it. Did you know how this stone came here, my friend? inquired the benevolent Mr. Pickwick. "'No, sir, I don't, sir,' replied the man civilly. "'It was very long before I were born.' "'Or any ass.' Mr. Pickwick glanced triumphantly at his companion. "'You, you are not particularly attached to it, I dare say,' said Mr. Pickwick, trembling with anxiety. "'You wouldn't mind selling it now.' "'Oh, but who'd buy it?' inquired the man with an expression of face which he probably meant to be very cunning. "'I'll give you ten shillings for it at once,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'if you would take it up for me. "'The astonishment of the village may be easily imagined "'when, the little stone having been raised with one wrench of a spade, "'Mr. Pickwick, by dint of a great personal exertion, "'bore it with his own hands to the inn, "'and after having carefully washed it, deposited it on the table. "'The exultation and joy of the Pickwickians knew no bounds when their patience and assiduity, their washing and scraping, were crowned with success. The stone was uneven and broken, and the letters were straggling and irregular, but the following fragment of an inscription was clearly to be deciphered. A cross. B-I-L-S-T. Then U-M. Then P S. H I then S period M period then A R K Mr. Pickwick's eyes sparkled with delight as he sat and gloated over the treasure he had discovered. He had attained one of the greatest objects of his ambition. In a county known to abound in remains of the early ages, in a village in which there still existed some memorials of the olden time. 
He, he, the chairman of the Pickwick Club, had discovered a strange and curious inscription of unquestionable antiquity, which had wholly escaped the observation of the many learned men who had preceded him. He could hardly trust the evidence of his senses. This, this, he said, determines me. We return to town tomorrow. Tomorrow, exclaimed his admiring followers. Tomorrow, said Mr. Pickwick. This treasure must be at once deposited where it can be thoroughly investigated and properly understood. I have another reason for this step. In a few days an election is to take place for the borough of Eatonswill, at which Mr. Perker, a gentleman whom I lately met, is the agent of one of the candidates. We will behold and minutely examine a scene so interesting to every Englishman. We will, was the animated cry of three voices. Mr. Pickwick looked round him. The attachment and fervor of his followers lighted up a glow of enthusiasm within him. He was their leader, and he felt it. Let us celebrate this happy meeting with a convivial glass, he said. This proposition, like the other, was received with unanimous applause, having himself deposited the important stone in a small deal-box purchased from the landlady for the purpose, he placed himself in an armchair at the head of the table, and the evening was devoted to festivity and conversation. It was past eleven o'clock, a late hour for the little village of Cobham, when Mr. Pickwick retired to the bedroom which had been prepared for his reception. He threw open the lattice window, and, setting his light upon the table, fell into a train of meditation on the hurried events of the two preceding days. The hour and the place were both favorable to contemplation. Mr. Pickwick was roused by the church clock striking twelve. The first stroke of the hour sounded solemnly in his ear, but when the bell ceased, the stillness seemed insupportable. He almost felt as if he had lost a companion. He was nervous and excited, and hastily undressing himself and placing his light in the chimney, got into bed. Everyone has experienced that disagreeable state of mind in which a sensation of bodily weariness and vain contends against an inability to sleep. It was Mr. Pickwick's condition at this moment. He tossed first on one side and then on the other, and perseveringly closed his eyes as if to coax himself to slumber. It was of no use, whether it was the unwanted exertion he had undergone, or the heat, or the brandy and water, or the strange bed. Whatever it was, his thoughts kept reverting very uncomfortably to the grim pictures downstairs, and the old stories to which they had given rise in the course of the evening. After half an hour's tumbling about, he came to the unsatisfactory conclusion that it was of no use trying to sleep so he got up and partially dressed himself. Anything, he thought, was better than lying there, fancying all kinds of horrors. He looked out the window. It was very dark. He walked about the room. It was very lonely. He had taken a few turns from the door to the window, and from the window to the door, when the clergyman's manuscript for the first time entered his head. It was a good thought. If it failed to interest him, it might send him to sleep. He took it from his coat pocket, and drawing a small table towards his bedside, trimmed the light, put on his spectacles, and composed himself to read. It was a strange handwriting, and the paper was much soiled and blotted. The title gave him a sudden start, too, and he could not avoid casting a wistful glance round the room. 
Reflecting on the absurdity of giving way to such feelings, however, he trimmed the light again and read as follows. A madman's manuscript. Yes, a madman. How that word would have struck to my heart many years ago, how it would have roused the terror that used to come upon me sometimes, sending the blood hissing and tingling through my veins till the cold dew of fear stood in large drops upon my skin, and my knees knocked together with fright. I like it now, though. It's a fine name. Show me the monarch whose angry frown was ever feared like the glare of a madman's eye, whose cord and axe were ever half so sure as a madman's grip. Ho, ho, it's a grand thing to be mad, to be peeped at like a wild lion through the iron bars, to gnash one's teeth and howl through the long still night, to the merry ring of a heavy chain, to the roll and twine among the straw, transported with such brave music. Hurrah for the madhouse! Oh, it's a rare place! I remember the days when I was afraid of being mad, when I used to start from my sleep and fall upon my knees and pray to be spared from the curse of my race, when I rushed from the sight of merriment or happiness to hide myself in some lonely place and spend the weary hours in watching the progress of the fever that was to consume my brain. I knew that madness was mixed up with my very blood and the marrow of my bones, that one generation had passed away without the pestilence appearing among them, and that I was the first in whom it would revive. I knew it must be so, that so it always had been, and so it ever would be, and I cowered in some obscure corner of a crowded room, and saw men whisper and point, and turn their eyes toward me. I knew they were telling each other of the doomed madman, and I slunk away again to mope in solitude. I did this for years, long, long years they were. The nights here are long sometimes, very long but there are nothing to the restless nights and dreadful dreams I had at that time. It makes me cold to remember them, large dusky forms with sly and jeering faces crouched in the corners of the room and bent over my bed at night, tempting me to madness. They told me in low whispers that the floor of the old house in which my father's father died was stained with his own blood, shed by his own hand in raging madness. I drove my fingers into my ears, but they screamed into my head till the room rang with it, that in one generation before him the madness slumbered, but that his grandfather had lived for years with his hands fettered to the ground to prevent his tearing himself to pieces. I knew they told the truth. I knew it well. I had found it out years before, though they had tried to keep it from me. Ha, ha, I was too cunning for them, madman as they thought me. At last it came upon me, and I wondered how I could have ever feared it. I could go into the world now and laugh and shout with the best among them. I knew I was mad, but they did not even suspect it. How I used to hug myself with delight when I thought of the fine trick I was playing them, after their old pointing and leering, when I was not mad, but only dreading that I might one day become so. And how I used to laugh for joy when I was alone and thought how well I kept my secret and how quickly my friends would have fallen from me if they had known the truth. I could have screamed with ecstasy when I dined alone with some fine, roaring fellow, to think how pale he would have turned, and how fast he would have run, if he had known that the dear friend who sat close to him, sharpening a bright, glittering knife, was a madman, with all the power and half the will to plunge it into his heart. Oh, it was a merry life. Riches became mine, wealth poured in upon me, 
and I rioted in pleasure enhanced a thousandfold to me by the consciousness of my well-kept secret. I inherited an estate. The law, the eagle-eyed law itself, had been deceived, and had handed over disputed thousands to a madman's hands. Where was the wit of the sharp-sighted men of sound mind? Where was the dexterity of the lawyers eager to discover a flaw? The madman's cunning had overreached them all. I had money. How I was courted. I spent it profusely. How I was praised. How those three proud, overbearing brothers humbled themselves before me. The old white-headed father, too. Such deference, such respect, such devoted friendship. He worshipped me. The old man had a daughter, and the young men a sister and all five were poor. I was rich, and when I married the girl I saw a smile of triumph play upon the faces of her needy relatives as they thought of their well-planned scheme and their fine prize. It was for me to smile, to smile, to laugh outright, and to tear my hair and roll upon the ground with shrieks of merriment. They little thought they had married her to a madman. Stay! If they had known it, would they have saved her? A sister's happiness against her husband's gold. The lightest feather I blow into the air against the gay chain that ornaments my body. In one thing I was deceived with all my cunning. If I had not been mad, for though we madmen are sharp-witted enough, we get bewildered sometimes. I should have known that the girl would have rather been placed stiff and cold in a dull-leaded coffin than born an envied bride to my rich glittering house. I should have known that her heart was with the dark-haired boy whose name I once heard her breathe in her troubled sleep, and that she had been sacrificed to me to relieve the poverty of the old white-headed man and the haughty brothers. I don't remember forms or faces now, but I know the girl was beautiful. I know she was, for in the bright moonlit nights when I start up from my sleep and all is quiet about me, I see standing still and motionless in one corner of this cell a slight and wasted figure with long black hair, which streaming down her back stirs with no earthly wind, and eyes that fix their gaze on me and never wink or close. Hush! The blood chills at my heart as I write it down. That form is hers, the voice is very pale, and the eyes are glassy bright. But I know them well. That figure never moves, it never frowns and mouths as others do that fill the place sometimes but it is much more dreadful to me even than the spirits that tempted me many years ago. It comes fresh from the grave, and is so very death-like. For nearly a year I saw that face grow paler, for nearly a year I saw the tears steal down the mournful cheeks, and never knew the cause. I found it out at last, though. They could not keep it from me long. She had never liked me. I had never thought she did. She despised my wealth and hated the splendor in which she lived, I had not expected that. She loved another. This I had never thought of. Strange feelings came over me, and thoughts forced upon me by some secret power whirled round and round my brain. I pitied, yes, I pitied, the wretched life to which her cold and selfish relations had doomed her. I knew that she could not live long, but the thought that before her death she might give birth to some ill-fated being destined to hand down madness to its offspring, determined me. I resolved to kill her. For many weeks I thought of poison, then of drowning, and then of fire. A fine sight, the grand house in flames, and the madman's wife smoldering away to cinders. Think of the jest of a large reward. 
and of some sane man swinging in the wind for a deed he never did, and all through a madman's cunning. I thought often of this, but I gave it up at last. Oh, the pleasure of stroping the razor day after day, feeling the sharp edge, and thinking of the gash one stroke of its thin bright edge would make. At last the old spirits who had been with me so often before whispered in my ear that the time was come, and thrust the open razor into my hand. I grasped it firmly, rose softly from the bed, and leaned over my sleeping wife. Her face was buried in her hands. I withdrew them softly, and they fell listlessly to her bosom. She had been weeping, for the trances of the tears were still wet upon her cheeks. Her face was calm and placid, and even as I looked upon it, a tranquil smile lighted up her pale features. I laid my hand softly on her shoulder. She started. It was only a passing dream. I leaned forward again. She screamed and woke. One motion of my hand, and she would never again have uttered cry or sound. But I was startled and drew back. Her eyes were fixed on mine. I know not how it was, but they cowed and frightened me, and I quailed beneath them. She rose from the bed, still gazing fixedly and steadily on me. I trembled. The razor was in my hand, but I could not move. She made towards the door. As she neared it, she turned and withdrew her eyes from my face. The spell was broken. I bounded forward and clutched her by the arm. Uttering shriek upon shriek, she sunk upon the ground. Now I could have killed her without a struggle, but the house was alarmed. I heard the tread of footsteps on the stairs. I replaced the razor in its usual drawer, unfastened the door, and called loudly for assistance. They came and raised her and placed her on the bed. She lay bereft of animation for hours, and when life looked and speech returned, her senses had deserted her, and she raved wildly and furiously. Doctors were called in, great men who rolled up to my door in easy carriages, with fine horses and gaudy servants. They were at her bedside for weeks. They had a great meeting and consulted together in low and solemn voices in another room. One, the cleverest and most celebrated among them, took me aside, and bidding me prepare for the worst, told me, me, the madman, that my wife was mad. He stood close beside me at an open window, his eyes looking in my face and his hands laid upon my arm. With one effort I could have hurled him into the street beneath. It would have been rare sport to have done it. But my secret was at stake, and I let him go. A few days after they told me I must place her under some restraint. I must provide a keeper for her. I, I went into the fields, where none could hear me, and laughed till the air resounded with my shouts. She died next day. The white-headed old man followed her to her the grave, and the proud brothers dropped a tear over the insensible corpse of her whose sufferings they had regarded in her lifetime with muscle of iron. All this was food for my secret mirth, and I laughed behind the white handkerchief which I held up to my face as we rode home till the tears came into my eyes. But though I had carried my object and killed her, I was restless and disturbed. I felt that before long my secret must be known. I could not hide the wild mirth and joy which boiled within me and made me, when I was alone at home, jump up and beat my hands together and dance round and round and roar aloud. When I went out and saw the busy crowds hurrying about the streets, or to the theatre and heard the sound of music and beheld the people dancing, I felt such glee that I could have rushed among them and torn them to pieces limb from limb and howled in transport. But I ground my teeth and struck my feet upon the floor and drove my sharp nails into my hands. 
I kept it down, and no one knew I was a madman yet. I remember, though it's one of the last things I can remember, for now I mix up realities with my dreams, and having so much to do, and always being hurried here, have no time to separate the two. From some strange confusion in which they get involved, I remember how I let it out at last. Ha, ha! I think I see their frightened looks now, and feel the ease with which I flung them from me, and dashed my clenched fist into their white faces, and then flew like the wind, and left them screaming and shouting far behind. The strength of a giant comes upon me when I think of it. There, see how this iron bar bends beneath my furious wrench. I could snap it like a twig. Only there are long galleries here with many doors. I don't think I could find my way along them. And even if I could, I know there are iron gates below, which they keep locked and barred. They know what a clever madman I have been, and they are proud to have me here to show. Let me see. Yes, I had been out. It was late at night, when I reached home and found the proudest of the three proud brothers waiting to see me. Urgent business, he said. I recollect it well. I hated that man with all the madman's hate. Many and many a time had my fingers longed to tear him, and they told me he was there. I ran swiftly upstairs. He had a word to say to me. I dismissed the servants. It was late, and we were alone together for the first time. I kept my eyes carefully from him at first, for I knew what he little thought, and I gloried in the knowledge that the light of madness gleamed from them like fire. We sat in silence for a few minutes. He spoke at last. My recent dissipation and strange remarks made so soon after his sister's death were an insult to her memory. Coupling together many circumstances which had at first escaped his observation, he thought I had not treated her well. He wished to know whether he was right in inferring that I meant to cast a reproach upon her memory and a disrespect upon her family. It was due to the uniform he wore to demand this explanation. This man had a commission in the army, a commission purchased with my money and his sister's misery. This was the man who had been foremost in the plot to ensnare me and grasp my wealth. This was the man who had been the main instrument in forcing his sister to wed me, well knowing that her heart was given to that pulling boy. Due to his uniform, the livery of his degradation, I turned my eyes upon him. I could not help it, but I spoke not a word. I saw the sudden change that came upon him beneath my gaze. He was a bold man, but the color faded from his face, and he drew back his chair. I dragged mine nearer to him, and as I laughed, I was merry then. I saw him shudder. I felt the madness rising within me. He was afraid of me. "'You were very fond of your sister when she was alive,' I said. "'Very.' He looked uneasily around him, and I saw his hand grasp the back of his chair, but he said nothing. "'You villain,' said I. "'I found you out. I discovered your hellish plots against me. I know her heart was fixed on someone else before you compelled her to marry me. I know it. I know it.' He jumped suddenly up from his chair, brandished it aloft, and bid me stand back, for I took care to be getting closer to him all the time I spoke. I screamed rather than talked, for I felt tumultuous passions eddying through my veins, and the old spirits whispering and taunting me to tear his heart out. Damn you, said I, starting up and rushing upon him. I killed her. I am a madman. Down with you. Blood. Blood. I will have it. I turned aside with one blow the chair he hurled at me in his terror, and closed with him, and with a heavy crash we rolled upon the floor together. 
It was a fine struggle, that, for he was a tall, strong man, fighting for his life, and I, a powerful madman, thirsting to destroy him. I knew no strength could equal mine, and I was right, right again, though a madman. His struggles grew fainter. I knelt upon his chest and clasped his brawny throat firmly with both hands. His face grew purple. His eyes were starting from his head, and with protruded tongue he seemed to mock me. I squeezed the tighter. The door was suddenly burst open with a loud noise, and a crowd of people rushed forward, crying aloud to each other to secure the madman. My secret was out, and my only struggle now was for liberty and freedom. I gained my feet before a hand was upon me, threw myself upon my assailants, and cleared my way with my strong arm as if I bore a hatchet in my hand, and hewed them down before me. I gained the door, dropped over the banister, and in an instant was in the street. Straight and swift I ran, and no one dared to stop me. I heard the noise of feet behind and redoubled my speed. It grew fainter and fainter in the distance, and at length died away altogether. But on I bounded, through marsh and rivulet, over fence and wall, and with a wild shout which was shaken up by the strange beings that flocked around me on every side and swelled the sound, till it pierced the air. I was borne upon the arms of demons who swept along upon the wind, and bore down bank and hedge before them, and spun me round and round with a rustle and a speed that made my head swim until at last they threw me from them with a violent shock, and I fell heavily upon the earth. When I woke I found myself here, here in this grey cell where the sunlight seldom comes, and the moonlight steals in, in rays which only serve to show the dark shadows about me, and that silent figure in the old corner. When I lie awake I can sometimes hear strange shrieks and cries from the distant parts of this large place. What are they? I know not but they neither come from that pale form, nor does it regard them. For from the first shades of dusk till the earliest light of morning, it still stands motionless in the same place, listening to the music of my iron chain, and watching the gambols on my straw bed. At the end of the manuscript was written in another hand this note. The unhappy man whose ravings are recorded above, and a melancholy instance of the baneful results of energies misdirected in early life, and excesses prolonged until their consequence could never be repaired. The thoughtless riot, dissipation, and debauchery of his younger days produced fever and delirium. The first efforts of the latter was the strange delusion, founded upon a well-known medical theory, strongly contended for by some, and strongly contested by others, that an heredity madness existed in his family. This produced a settled gloom, which in time developed a morbid insanity, and finally terminated in raving madness. There is every reason to believe that the events he detailed, though distorted in the description by his diseased imagination, really happened. It is only matter of wonder to those who were acquainted with the vices of his early career that his passions, when no longer controlled by reason, did not lead him to the commission of still more frightful deeds. Mr. Pickwick's candle was just expiring in the socket as he concluded the perusal of the old clergyman's manuscript, and when the light went suddenly out without any previous flicker, by way of warning, it communicated a very considerable start to his excited frame. Hastily throwing off such articles of clothing as he had put on when he rose from his uneasy bed, and casting a fearful glance around, he once more scrambled hastily between the sheets and soon fell fast asleep. The sun was shining brilliantly into his chamber when he awoke, and the morning was far advanced. 
The gloom which had oppressed him on the previous night had disappeared with the dark shadows which shrouded the landscape, and his thoughts and feelings were as light and gay as the morning itself. After a hearty breakfast, the four gentlemen sallied forth to walk to Gravesend, followed by a man bearing the stone in its deal-box. They reached that town about one o'clock. Their luggage they had directed to be forwarded to the city from Rochester, and being fortunate enough to secure places on the outside of a coach, arrived in London in sound health and spirits on that same afternoon. The next three or four days were occupied with the preparations which were necessary for their journey to the borough of Eatonsville. As any reference to that most important undertaking demands a separate chapter, we may devote a few lines which remain at the close of this to narrate, with great brevity, the history of the antiquarian discovery. It appears from the transactions of the club, then, that Mr. Pickwick lectured upon the discovery at a general club meeting, convened on the night succeeding their return, and entered into a variety of ingenious and erudite speculations on the meaning of the inscription. It also appears that a skilful artist executed a faithful delineation of this curiosity which was engraved on the stone and presented to the Royal Antiquarian Society and other learned bodies, that heart-burnings and jealousies without number were created by rival controversies which were penned upon the subject, and that Mr. Pickwick himself wrote a pamphlet containing ninety-six pages of very small print and twenty-seven different readings of the inscription, that three old gentlemen cut off their eldest sons with a shilling apiece for presuming to doubt the antiquity of the fragment, and that one enthusiastic individual cut himself off prematurely, in despair at being unable to fathom its meaning. The Mr. Pickwick was elected an honorary member of seventeen native and foreign societies for making the discovery that none of the seventeen could make anything of it, but that all the seventeen agreed it was very extraordinary. Indeed, and the name will be doomed to the undying contempt of those who cultivate the mysterious and the sublime. Mr. Blotton, we say, with the doubt and cavilling peculiar to vulgar minds, presumed to state a view of the case as degrading and ridiculous. Mr. Blotton, with the mean desire to tarnish the luster of the immortal name of Pickwick, actually undertook a journey to Cobham in person, and on his return sarcastically observed in an oration at the club that he had seen the man from whom the stone was purchased. But the man presumed the stone to be ancient, but solemnly denied the antiquity of the inscription, inasmuch as he represented it to have been rudely carved by himself in an idle mood, and to display the letters indeed to bear neither more nor less than the simple construction of Bill Stumps, his mark, and that Mr. Stumps, being little in the habit of original composition, and more accustomed to be guided by the sound of words than by the strict rules of orthography, had omitted the concluding L of his Christian name. The Pickwick Club, as might have been expected from so enlightened an institution, received this statement with the contempt it deserved, expelled the presumptuous and ill-conditioned Blotton, and voted Pickwick a pair of gold spectacles in token of their confidence and approbation, in return for which Mr. Pickwick caused a portrait of himself to be painted and hung up in the club room. Mr. Blotton, though ejected, was not conquered. He also wrote a pamphlet addressed to the seventeen learned societies, native and foreign, containing a repetition of the statement he had already made, and rather more than half intimating his opinion that the seventeen learned societies were so many humbugs. Hereupon, the virtuous indignation of the seventeen learned societies, native and foreign, being roused, several fresh pamphlets appeared, Eddie's corresponded with the native learned societies, the native learned societies translated the pamphlets of the foreign learned societies into English, 
the foreign learned societies translated the pamphlet of the native learned societies into all sorts of languages and thus commenced that celebrated scientific discussion so well known to all men as the pickwick controversy but this base attempt to injure mr pickwick recoiled upon the head of its calumnious author the seventeen learned societies unanimously voted the presumptuous blotton an ignorant meddler and forthwith set to work upon more treaties than ever and to this day the stone remains an illegible monument of Mr. Pickwick's greatness, and a lasting trophy to the littleness of his enemies. End of chapter 11